Would you join me in praying one more time before we go to the Lord in his word? Father, thank you for the precious gift of the firm foundation of your word that speaks a word truer and clearer than all the circumstances that we've encountered this week. No matter what our hearts are feeling or where our heaviness lies, you call us through Jesus to come uh, who labor and are heavy laden and find rest, to come and behold the Savior who is gentle and lowly of heart. I pray that as we come to your word, seeking to see Christ, that you would, in the text of your scriptures, reveal your son to us, that you would show us Christ and that you would make us more like him. It's only through your spirit working in us that this can happen. And so I pray that your spirit would work and we pray in confidence knowing that you desire to do that. So would you help us now? Amen. Amen, friends. We are in the second half of 2 Timothy 2, and we are this morning continuing our study of 2 Timothy, a book that we've said is about leaving a legacy for the gospel by sharing in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul thus far has been focused on external suffering. Suffering for the sake of the gospel that comes about because the world hears the testimony of Jesus and says, that's foolishness. And it's that kind of suffering that Paul has been focused on. But now he makes a shift in his letter. Because what Timothy was facing in Ephesus and what we face day to day as we strive to share in this suffering and to leave a gospel legacy is not only suffering that comes from the world but suffering that comes from within the church because not everybody clings closely to the truth in the church. And in the church, there arises, as Paul warned and as Jesus warned, men speaking twisted things, men distorting the word of God and abandoning the right character and godliness that the word of God calls for. And so the rising up of these kind of false teachers in the church cause suffering within the church. And sharing in suffering in light of that kind of internal division is one of the ways we can continue to leave a gospel legacy. So Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to be prepared and he wants us to be prepared. The question I want to wrestle with this morning in light of that is as we strive to leave this gospel legacy by sharing and suffering for the sake of the gospel, what kind of leaders should we seek to be, those of us who are in positions of leadership, and what kind of leaders should we seek to follow, those of us who are following godly leaders? This is Paul's aim. He wants Timothy to know what kind of leader to be, And also, what kind of leader to try to form? Remember, we saw at the beginning of 2 Timothy 2, in verse 2, Paul wants Timothy to take what he's heard from him and entrust it to others, who will be able to teach others also. So he wants Timothy to be thinking about what kind of disciple makers should I be trying to form? And he wants those disciple makers to be a certain reflection of the image of Christ that others emulate. 
Remember, Paul in other places in the New Testament has called believers to imitate him as he imitates Christ. To follow the example of godly brothers and sisters as they follow Jesus. And so, this is not just a message for Timothy or a message for others who would be in church leadership, be that elders or deacons or those kind of things. It's a message for all of us because how our leaders are in the church as they imitate Christ, is how we all are called to be as we strive to follow Jesus. So Paul's burden here is to give Timothy and the church at Ephesus and us three pictures or portraits of what fit disciple makers look look like. Fit disciple makers that are fit to make other disciples, that are well equipped to take what they've learned and to pass it on. Paul wants to give us three portraits of fit disciple makers. And that's what we're going to look at today. Starting in verses 14 to 19 of chapter 2, Paul gives us the first portrait, the approved worker. Verse 14, he writes this to Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul starts in verse 14. Remind them of these things. This is looking back to what he's already said in chapter 2. He's saying remind them. Who's he talking about? Who is them that he wants to be reminded of these things? Think if we look back in 2 Timothy 2. We see who them are in verse two, the people that Paul is saying, take what you've heard from me and entrust it to others. The people that Timothy is raising up to be these disciple makers. Paul wants him to remind them of something. Remind them of these things is what we've already seen in the process of chapter two, right? In verse one, he calls Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So remind these disciple-making disciples, to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then what we just saw last week in verse 13, that Jesus himself remains faithful to his character and to us, even when we are faithless, even when we struggle to follow Jesus, he remains faithful. Remind them of Jesus' faithfulness. It's in light of these things that Paul then gives his charges. You see, scripture works this way. We hear what God has done. And who God is towards us in Christ Jesus. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. The faithfulness that is in Christ Jesus. And then we're given what we're supposed to do. Right? Indicatives. What is. Come before imperatives. What we do. The grace of Jesus comes before the works that we do in response. And now Paul calls Timothy. Remind them of this grace. The things that are. And then charge them what to do. And he gives three imperatives in this paragraph. We see in verse 14, first of all, that they're supposed to not 
quarrel about words. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. And then in verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Another command, do your best to do this. And then in verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. And he gives all these reasons why. So we're going to look at those three imperatives one by one. Verse 14, do not quarrel about words. Paul is saying here that the fit disciple maker, the one who is able to be a disciple who makes disciples faithfully in the image of Jesus, does not quarrel about words, is not distracted by word wars. This is the same way that Paul talks about quarreling about words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. He says this, 1 Timothy 6, the second half of verse 4. The one who teaches contrary to sound doctrine, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, etc. This person that has an unhealthy craving for quarreling about words, for word wars, it's an issue we see in that text of the heart. It's an unhealthy craving to fight about words that I think we can say is built on the desire to be right. Notice in this paragraph, Paul is really talking about our desire for approval, right? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Where does approval come from? And for those who engage in word wars, it comes often from being right. Our desire to overcome someone who opposes us by proving that our way of talking about a particular word is right and theirs is wrong. This was happening in the church about disputed matters. And it was, as we see in verse 14, not doing good, but ruining the ones who hear it. Now, this might still feel kind of abstract. I think an example that I've seen, at least in my own life, of this kind of word war and quarreling, which does no good, is what I would call cage stage Calvinism. And I think I've mentioned it before, and I went through it. It's when you come to a realization of the beauty of the doctrines of grace, and you become so passionate about it, that you want to make sure everyone around you knows it's the right way to think about God and his works. And what happens in that is you get embroiled in little word wars with those who don't hold to the doctrines of grace the same way. You say, this is the right way to think about the doctrines of grace, and your way is wrong, and you do it with such fervor that instead of exposing the beauty of Christ and the gospel, you actually make it look bad, make it look unappealing. It ruins those who hear because they see that you're more concerned about being right and winning this argument than you are about someone coming to know Christ more. Doesn't mean these are unimportant things, but it's the way that you argue. It's the unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarreling about the words themselves that Paul is rebuking here. And he's saying, those who are fit to make disciples, don't get pulled into this trap. Don't get distracted from knowing the beauty of Christ by arguing over the words about Christ to such an extent that you miss the forest for the trees. He's saying avoid this peril, but also in verse 16, he's saying avoid this other peril. Avoid irreverent babble, he says in verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like Gangrene. What makes irreverent babble? 
We see that if we continue reading there, he says, here's an example. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They have departed from the sure path of God's word, swerved from the truth. It's irreverent babble because it's not teaching the word of God. It's not rightly handling the word as we'll see in a moment. It's distorting it for their own benefit. He says, shameful workers, those who need to be ashamed of what they're doing, are departing from this truth and is producing this wicked fruit. Notice verse 16, it leads people into more and more ungodliness. This teaching doesn't promote godliness that comes from the gospel, as we saw in Titus, but leads people into more and more ungodliness. Not only that, but it, in verse 18, it upsets the faith of some. It spreads like gangrene. Now, Tim probably knows what gangrene is. I don't really know what gangrene is, but it, it's, it's, like a, it's like a cancerous tissue. It spreads all over. Another way to translate the word is cancer. It continues to grow and take over the organism until it kills it. And that's what Paul says, this kind of irreverent babble, this kind of straying from the word, this departing from the truth does. I think we can make some inferences on why these false teachers might be spreading this kind of truth. Notice it grows and spreads and becomes a known teaching. In their seeking for approval, they are looking for it through growing influence and through being able to have this new teaching that says, you know what, we're already actually raised from the dead. It's a distortion of what Paul wrote in places like Colossians 2 and in Ephesians. It's ignoring other things that Paul taught, like 1 Corinthians 15, where there is a bodily resurrection. It was the teachers that were trying to say, we've already been raised from the dead, and so our body and what we do here does not matter, because the resurrection is spiritual only. But obviously that's contrary to what Christ and Paul taught. So they are not sticking with the truth, but they are departing from it. In the middle of this, cutting a clear path through this, is how Paul wants fit disciples to be. He says in verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. A fit disciple does not depart from the truth and does not become distracted from the truth through these word wars, but rightly handles the word of the truth. The, the word used in here for rightly handling the truth is the same kind of word that's used in Proverbs when it talks about God making straight our paths. It's talking about cutting a straight path to the word so that God's people can understand it and can hear it and can be changed by it. Not trying to distort and twist it by distractions or distort and twist it by departing from it, but going to God's word and teaching it faithfully. It's a right handling of God's word. And I think Paul intentionally mentions it between these two dangers to give us this image of the path cutting through the dangerous forest, right? We don't want to get stuck in these areas. We want to go faithfully to God's word. Scripture is clear and God's teachers should teach it clearly. This shows us that words and right teaching matter. Paul is not saying when he says, 
avoid irreverent babble and don't quarrel about words. He's not saying don't care about doctrine and don't teach concrete truths. But he's saying the core truths of the gospel, the firm foundation of God's word is so clear that if you're going to handle it faithfully, you're going to teach it clearly. That's what he's saying here. He points to this clear foundation even in verse 19. Because looking at these false teaching and knowing, false teachers arising and knowing the danger that they pose to the church and the danger even that Timothy himself could fall into one of these categories or that the people he raises up as disciples could depart from the truth. Knowing this danger, he reminds Timothy of the firm foundation of God's word in verse 19. God's firm foundation stands, he says, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You'll notice in your Bibles, I'm sure this is in quotes, because it's quoting God's word from the Old Testament, from Numbers 16. Numbers 16, in that text, we see a dispute arise between Moses and Aaron and some of the Levites under Korah. It's called Korah's Rebellion. If you know your Sunday school stories and this one was taught to you, it's Korah's Rebellion when he rose up against Moses and said, what gives you a right to be the mediator between God and us? I think I should be too. And God had appointed Moses to do this work. And so Korah was rejecting not Moses, but God. And God judged him for it and actually opened the ground around Korah and all of his family and swallowed them up into the earth as a judgment against them because God himself knew who was his. As Paul says, the firm foundation stands, the Lord knows those who are his. And it wasn't Korah and those who were rejecting him. Even though they looked mighty and scary and it looked like it was going to cause conflict and destroy Israel, God himself intervened and saved his people. God himself, when he intervened and saved his people, told them, depart from among Korah, separate yourself from that wickedness and come over to Moses' side because if you're with them, you're going to be swallowed. And that's what he means when he quotes in the second half of verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, come away from the evil ones, the the false teachers that are going to twist the word of God or those that are going to get embroiled in these word controversies. Come to those who are going to handle the word of God rightly and truly. What we learn from this text, what Paul is trying to teach us is that we need to be aware of departing from the truth, right? We need to be aware of departing from the truth. One of the ways we depart from the truth and are tempted to depart from the truth is when we seek approval in the wrong ways and the wrong places. When we make our sense of self-worth on whether we are right or not, and we get caught in those little word quarrels, or we make our sense of whether we're worthwhile in our influence, and we become tempted to say what's going to be popular or pleasing so that others will like us. But it will spread like a cancer and destroy God's people, Paul says. That's a danger for us, but I think even greater than that is the danger of mishandling God's word. You see, in, in Paul's day, it was Jesus has already raised, or the resurrection has already happened. It was a mishandling and a distortion of God's word. It wasn't teaching something outside of God's word. 
It was using something that Paul had said and ignoring something else that he had said, using something that Jesus taught and ignoring something else that he taught for the sake of giving this new teaching, giving this justification for what they wanted to do as false teachers. It was mishandling God's word and it was appealing to the church because it used God's word. That same kind of thing, that same kind of danger, friends, exists today. One of the most prominent places it exists today is in what I call therapeutic preaching. We live in an age that has redefined what sin is in therapeutic terms. As one, co- one commentator writes this way, he says, Therapeutic preaching, my term, reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby. Okay, when we redefine what the problem is, that sin is not the problem, but how we feel about ourselves is the problem, then we redefine what the solution is, right? What we need is not the blood of Jesus and a Savior. What we need is some therapy that helps us feel better about ourselves. And we redefine the goal and we say, what I want from church is I want to come and then leave feeling better about myself. Friends, if that's your goal or if that's the goal of the people that lead you, you are being led astray. Okay, You should feel better after leaving because your faith is encouraged to trust in Jesus who is better. Not because you have been therapized or you have been subtly taught that, you know what, it's not really so bad. One of the ways that I've heard it talked about that I think is helpful is we think about church And Christian culture, often in terms of alleviating our felt anxieties these days. We think about it and how can it help me feel better about myself and the world I live in, which is a therapeutic approach. That's not the primary goal. It is sometimes and often an effect of hearing the gospel and hearing the truth of Christ and putting our hope in him. Right? We do feel more secure. We do feel more comforted when we trust in Jesus. But it is not the main problem and the main goal. Therapeutic preaching, though, places those things at the center and actually uses God's word, but in a way that doesn't handle it rightly, in a way that swerves subtly from the truth. So, friends, beware of that kind of of preaching. Check the kind of teaching you receive. Is it rightly handling God's word? And then secondly, we see in this text, does it produce the kind of fruits that God's word is meant to produce? False teaching produces more and more ungodliness and destroys the faith of those who hear. True teaching, by contrast, leads to increasing godliness among God's people, right? And it strengthens the faith of those who hear doesn't destroy it. So friends, check the fruits that we hear. What Paul is saying in this is to be and follow as fit disciple makers, those who do their best to rightly handle the word of truth. I appreciate those words. Do your best, right? In verse 15, do your best because God works in us. And so we work. God's grace, the strength of Jesus Christ and The faithfulness of Jesus Christ works among his workers so that we do our best to rightly handle the word of truth. So seek out those who are doing their best and follow them. That's first portrait. When he says depart from iniquity at the end of verse 19, 
this leads him into the second picture of fit disciple makers. The second portrait of fit disciple makers. Because sometimes we can think that right teaching is all that matters. That right handling of the word of truth is all that matters. So as long as the preacher preaches fire, that's fine. Doesn't matter what he's like. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. Right? Let all who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then he says in verse 20 to 22, he says this, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul is switching metaphors here. Instead of, instead of an approved worker, he's talking about a clean vessel in this great house. He says in a great house, in verse 20, he says in a great house there are vessels of gold and silver and wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And in your own house, you're familiar, right, with some, some things are for special occasions, some things are for entertaining guests maybe, and some things are for everyday common use, and some are even dishonorable. No one wants to be a spittoon in the house of the Lord, right? That's not where we want to be. We look at this description and we say, I, I want to be a vessel of honorable use. No one, no one sets out wanting to be dishonorable. So Paul assumes that Timothy and all those who want to be fit disciple makers will long for this path to honor. And he says, here's how you become a vessel for honorable use. Here's how you become one. He says in verse 21, if you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, you will be a vessel for honorable use. If you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Now you might think we're not used to thinking in terms of cleansing ourselves, right? We're used to thinking in terms of the blood of Jesus cleanses us. But Paul says here, cleanse yourself. And what he means is in verse 22. What he means is to flee and pursue certain things. Verse 22, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee youthful passions. When he's saying dishonorable, cleansing yourself from dishonorable, that's what he's talking about. Fleeing those youthful passions. When we hear that, it's pretty common for us to think, Timothy, a guy, youthful passions, Paul is talking about sexual purity. Paul is talking about fleeing the dangers of impurity. And that's often given as a warning to young pastors because it's often a dangerous temptation. But friends, being a fit disciple maker is more about more than being sexually pure. That's not only what Paul is talking about. He certainly, ministers of the gospel should be pure. He talks about that in many places. But here, he's talking about something even more subtle. And actually, I would argue more difficult for young ministers of the gospel. And for old ones. For any of us who are in this kind of position. He says... Flee what is dishonorable. And in the context, he's talking about quarreling and he's talking about irreverent babble. He's talking about all these, all these potentials to engage with things that are going to be unfruitful. 
all these potentials to engage in a way that is going to be unfruitful. As we'll see in verses 23 to 26, he's talking about not being quarrelsome, but kind and patient and gentle. As a young minister, the kind of dishonorable passions that Paul wanted Timothy to flee were the kind of hot-headedness that goes with being young. Often, it's the kind of hot-headedness that leads to things like impatience, right? When, when Paul is saying, cleanse yourself from what's dishonorable, he's saying, cleanse yourself from impatience, which I don't know about you guys, but that's a lot harder for me to cleanse myself of than sexual impurity. It, it, being patient is a lot more difficult than being pure, at least for me. He's saying, cleanse yourself of impatience, of harshness, of the kind of pride that comes from being young and thinking you know everything. The kind of pride that will make you easily incited into a word battle, right? He's saying, cleanse yourself from being quick-tempered. All these kind of character traits that we so easily ignore when we think about honor among God's servants, right? The honorable vessel will be cleansed from impatience, harshness, pride, quick-temperedness. But when we look for honor, what we're taught by our culture is to see honor in terms of things like power or to see honor in terms of things like wealth or influence or fame or giftedness. We set aside things like patience and meekness and humility, right? Because those don't, those don't garner much fame or honor in our culture. In the church, we're tempted to be influenced by that too. It's very easy in the church when we look at who do we follow, who do we try to emulate. It's very easy for us to see someone who's very gifted and rightly handles the word of truth and to ignore their character. You want an example of just this? Just think about Mark Driscoll, a wonderfully gifted teacher, a very, very gifted communicator, and yet a man who was a bully who treated his, his church, his flock, and those around him with harshness and impatience, not with gentleness and meekness. And he was removed from ministry because of these things. But it took a long time to get there and in the process destroyed all of Mars Hill Church. Because these things were overlooked by the church, because the church honored not what God says is, makes an honorable vessel, But because the church said, it's okay. It's no big deal. If we do not look for honor in the right places, friends, we will not only be tempted to overlook these character traits when we're thinking about who to follow, but as we're following something, we will be tempted to ignore serious sin. It's come out this last year as Ravi Zacharias died and people have started coming forward that he led a double life, that he rightly handled the word of truth, and did much apparent good and fruitfulness in his ministry. And that that fruitfulness and that good that he did caused those around him to remain silent and ignore deep sexual depravity in him. And now it's coming out and it's shaking the faith of some because they have put their faith in him as a person rather than in Christ. And so, friends, we need to be careful to not look at giftedness aside from character, to not look at rightly handling the word of truth, saying the right things aside from doing the right 
things. Living the right kind of life. Living a life that is walking and cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable. And cleansing yourself, fleeing these youthful passions. Notice it's directional too. Flee these youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love. All these things. It's directional. It's not a one-time thing. And so when we are looking for who to follow and who to be like and trying to think about what, what should we be like as fit disciple makers, we want to be and follow fit disciple makers who are fleeing and pursuing in the way that Paul is calling Timothy to do. Not those who are perfect, but those who are on a trajectory towards increasing maturity in Christ, increasing evidence of the fruits of the Spirit at work in their life. If we don't do that, if we don't cleanse ourselves from these things and we don't, we don't work to be a people that follows people who are cleansing themselves from these things, then we cannot possibly do what Paul calls Timothy to do next. This is the third portrait of a fit disciple maker. And he says it's the Lord's servant in verses 23 to 26. Look at verse 23 with me. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, the third portrait, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. As people who care deeply about the truth and believe that rightly handling God's word is essential to our life as a church, it is easy then to become pugnacious and to contend for the truth in a way that causes us to be quarrelsome. And so Paul is warning against that again, saying, do not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Does that sound like anyone to you? Kind, patient, patiently enduring evil, teaching us, correcting us with gentleness, When Paul says the Lord's servant must be this, he is intentionally alluding to the Lord's servant in Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah are are called the servant songs because they're about this servant of the Lord who will one day come and rescue his people by being a suffering servant who brings comfort to his people. He's described in Isaiah In places like Isaiah 50 verse 4, that he can sustain his people with the word. He can sustain the weary with the word from his mouth. He's a good teacher. In Isaiah 42 2, it says he won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a smoldering wick. He is gentle to those he is comforting. He is gentle to those he is teaching. Isaiah 56 says that he gives his back to those who strike him. He gives his back to those who strike him. He patiently endures evil. It talks about those who will rip out his beard. He endures that evil from them. Isaiah 53, 7 says, like a lamb to a slaughter, he goes and he is silent. He doesn't cry out and doesn't protest that he's getting what he doesn't deserve. But he goes as a lamb to the slaughter because he knows 
That's how he's going to rescue the people that are trying to kill him. This suffering servant, this Lord servant in Isaiah is Jesus Christ, who in Matthew eleven twenty nine says that at his very heart, he is gentle and lowly. That all who come to him, weak and weary from this world, will find rest. And they will take his yoke on them, but it'll be light and not burdensome. Because this is his very character. He is what Paul is calling for in here. It's that kind of servant that the Lord's servant must be. Now, if you don't cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, the youthful passions that wage war in us, impatience, pride, hot-headedness, harshness, quick temper. If you don't cleanse yourself from these things, you can't possibly be like that servant when confronted with opponents, can you? But Jesus was. Jesus was like that. We are to be and follow fit disciple makers who strive to be like and to follow the ultimate Lord's servant, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at all the way through. It's the character of Christ that is shining through and he's calling us to do this. He gives us two ways to do it. One of them is to remember who the true enemy is. When he says in verse 25 that we want to be correcting opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul's saying that. So that we remember that these opponents, these false teachers that rise up within the church, those who engage in word battles and those, those who swerve from the truth, they've all been captured by Satan to do his will. They've all been distorted and deceived into following after the prince of lies. And he is the real enemy behind all of this Fighting the false teaching that arises within the church is a spiritual battle that's going on between God and Satan. Between between the seed of the woman who trusts in Jesus Christ and the seed of the serpent who rejects God and wages war against him and hates him. And all of these people have been captured, but they may be through our patient, gentle, kind teaching and correcting They may be rescued. They may be rescued from the snare of Satan after being captured by him. So first, we must remember who the true enemy is. But second, we must remember who the true savior is. It's not us and it's not fit disciple makers within the church. The true savior is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus suffered the shame of the cross. He was the one who was shamed so that we don't have to be ashamed but can receive the approval of the Father. Not because of any merit of ours, but because Jesus himself purchased that approval for us. Jesus himself suffered dishonor so that we could be cleansed from what is dishonorable. Jesus himself patiently endured evil. Even our evil. Think about it for a sec. Before you knew Christ, you were captured by Satan. In a snare to do his will. And how did Jesus respond to you? It wasn't by fighting word battles with you. It wasn't by teaching you false things and leading you astray. 
right? It was by rightly handling the word of the truth through his servants to pierce your heart with the truth, to lead you along the true way. And he didn't, he didn't lead you in what was dishonorable or leave you dirty, but he cleansed you with his blood. And he didn't harshly rebuke you, but he gently corrected you, didn't he? Didn't he? he patiently endured our evil. He corrected us with gentleness. We were dead. We were enemies of Christ. And yet he, in his kindness to us, rescued us from the snare of Satan. And through the patient gentleness of Jesus, you and I, and all who trust in Christ, have been rescued, redeemed, granted repentance that led to the knowledge of the truth, right? God calls us, through what Paul writes to Timothy here, to be like that, to those even that are the most ardent opponents of the church, in a way that contends for doctrine, but does so with kindness and gentleness and patience, in a way that trusts God in his spirit to work through his word in the hearts of his people. So friends, my exhortation to you and to me is to be and follow fit disciple makers who strive to be like this, who strive to be like and follow Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate disciple maker. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your gentle, patient kindness to us in rescuing us, not leaving us in our blindness, but teaching us to repent and turn and trust in you and follow you as you live according to the commands of your Father. Thank you that you are making us more like you. I pray that you would, that you would help us to remember your character and remember the ways that you have shown your kindness to us and that that would empower us to do what this text calls us to do. That that would empower us to rightly handle your word and care deeply about seeing truth from your word and not swerving from it. And that that would help us to cleanse ourselves from all the temptation towards impatience and towards harshness. And that that would help us Correct even our opponents with gentleness. Jesus, it's only through your spirit working in us that we can be this way and testify that it is your gospel that brings hope. That it is your gospel that shows us your character and that is your gospel that brings us to the Father. So would you help us do these things and be this way? Amen.